All right, I'm going to ask you to find James chapter 3, and we are going to finish the third message on this central paragraph to the whole book. I think I said to you uh, when we began this little section that we have been making our way through large chunks of the book of James at a time. And when we get to chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, it's like James slows everything down and brings it almost to a standstill because he wants us to grasp the heart of the book. This is, this is the heart of everything that James has been talking about when he is addressing us and reminding us that the thing we most need to be doing with our lives in this world is displaying a living faith to a dying world. And we noted that that living faith has to be marked by three things. It has to be wholehearted, it has to be single-focused, and it has to be fully trusting. And we have said that together every week for 15 messages. By the way, this is our 15th message in the book of James. I uh, hope that you are learning the book of James, but even more than that, I hope the book of James is owning you, that, that it is captivating you. So can we say that together? A living faith is marked by three things. It is marked by wholeheartedness, single-mindedness, and it is fully trusting in God and in his word. I... Uh, I think as we get into this, let's just make sure that we have the flow of James in our mind. I've, I've entitled a message today, Wisdom Enjoyed. Our first uh, observation as we came to this text was verse 1, when we talked about how wisdom works. And then our next message dealt with verses, uh, six, I'm sorry, verses 14 and 15 and 16, so those three verses, and we looked at what happens when wisdom goes wrong. What happens when wisdom goes wrong? And so let us, as we sort of jump into wisdom and joy, let's make sure we understand the main lessons that James has been teaching us, and they're on the screen in front of you. Lesson number one is the lesson of two kingdoms. And we learned this lesson in James chapter 1. And we noted that in the book of James, there are only two big ideas when it comes to kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Messiah that is coming, and then there are all the little kingdoms of the world that make up the kingdom of darkness. And you are a citizen of both kingdoms. You didn't start that way. You, you started out as a citizen of one kingdom. You started out as a citizen of the kingdom of darkness. But because you embraced the truth in the gospel and you repented of your sin, God took you out of that kingdom and he put you into the kingdom of his dear son. This is exactly what we learned in the book of Colossians. These two kingdoms could not be more different. The kingdom of this world is energized. Its course, the way it operates, is energized by somebody called the God of this world. And the God of this world is is at work in the heart 
of all of the original members of that kingdom. And there is a word for them. There is a description for them. All the people who live in that kingdom and who were original members of that kingdom are described this way. They are sons of disobedience. Their life is marked by disobedience to the word of God. You used to be that way. And James says, you were taken out of that kingdom and you were made a permanent citizen of the kingdom of his dear son. That is the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom over which Jesus rules. And that kingdom is one day going to come when Jesus returns and you are going to be a member of that kingdom. So while you are a member of that kingdom, you have been made an ambassador to these kingdoms. And that's really your role. Matthew talked about it this way. You are to be salt and you are to be light. And so James picks up on that idea, the lesson of the two kingdoms. And then he goes on in chapter two to talk about the lesson of the two faiths. James is going to be very pointed with his readers. Remember we talked about Pastor James being wise and gracious, but he's also very direct. And so James begins to talk very pointedly to his readers, and he says to them, now you claim to have faith, and I want to talk to you about that claim, because there are two kinds of faith in James, and and they sound remarkably similar, because they all talk about the same content. So it's not like James is talking about faith in God, and then faith in some pagan deity. These are Two different faiths, but if you listen to the content of the faith, it's the same. One of the faiths is a dead faith. James says the faith that that you have might be a dead faith, and a dead faith is deadly because it is powerless to do what you need faith to do. And the thing you most need faith to do is to deliver you from the wrath of God on the day you stand before him. And so James says, it is imperative that you assure yourself that the faith you claim to have and that you articulate with your mouth is not a dead faith, a powerless faith. It needs to be a living faith. And the validation of the presence of a living faith in your life is this, a living faith is faithful to the word of God. It does whatever the will of God is. There are evidences of that faith. And so what does a living faith do? Well, James says it does the will of God with regard to trials. In chapter one, it counts a trial as an occasion of joy and it endures. That's one of the evidences of a living faith in your life. James goes on to say in chapter 1, a living faith is a faith that is progressively learning how to resist temptation. And when it yields to a temptation, it repents like Abraham did when he yielded to temptation in the journey of his faith. A living faith learns how to respond quickly to God's word. It is quick to hear. It is eager to receive God's word. It is slow to speak against God's word, and it, does, it resists the anger that comes in our lives and our hearts when somebody gets in our way or a circumstance doesn't go our way. It doesn't 
quickly come to anger. It, it is slow to anger because the anger of man, James says, does not produce the righteousness of God. There are two kinds of faith. James talks about the lesson of trials and temptations. Trials grow and deepen a living faith. Temptation becomes the way in which a living faith displays its loyalty and its fidelity, its faithfulness to God. Have you ever wondered why God allows trials in your life as a Christian? And why God allows temptation to come against you? And the answer is because those trials are how God intends to deepen and strengthen our faith. And those temptations become daily opportunity for us to declare and display a loyalty to God that comes out of a heart that loves him with all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our soul and all of our might. Well, how are we going to learn how to do that? Well, that's lesson number four. James says there is a perfect gift. There is the lesson of the perfect gift. God, when he chose to give you a gift, gave you a perfect gift. And it came down from the Father of Lights. That's a reference to God as the creator of the cosmos. And something happened to the light. Something happened to the cosmos. Something happened to the universe. There was a shadow of turning in the universe. There isn't a shadow of turning in God, but there was a shadow of turning in his universe. The word for that is wander. The universe wandered. And you and I know exactly what James is talking about when he implies that, when there's that little echo of what happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. Our first parents, the first two image bearers created as light bearers, wandered. And you know how they wandered. They listened to words. They listened to the wrong words. There's an interesting connection that James makes between wisdom and words. There's the wisdom of God that you find in his words, and then there's the wisdom below that you find in the words that come from a demonic source, from the devil himself. And so creation wandered, and God said, I'm going to restore it, and I'm going to send a perfect gift that will draw it back. And so he sent down the word of truth. In Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to discover that the word of truth is actually embodied in the second member of the Trinity. But the word of truth about that second member of the Trinity, the self-revelation of God, is found in our Bible. And James says, I want you to know some things about that word of truth. It brought you to life as a light bearer. You are, you are the first fruit of what all of creation is going to enjoy when God brings about a return. When he returns creation to its original purpose and he restores it, you are the first fruit of the power of the gospel to do that. It is the perfect law of God and it perfects us. It is the royal law. It is the law of the king. It is the will of the king. It is the law of liberty. It liberates us so that we can live life as God intended it to be lived. And all of this is found in something called the Scripture that you hold in your hand. So there's the perfect gift. And what are you supposed to do with that perfect gift? Well, James says, let me tell you 
the next lesson, let me talk to you about the lesson of the looking glass. You are supposed to do more than just look. You're supposed to do more than be a professional student of the Word. You're supposed to do more than just take good notes and make little notations in your study Bible, which, by the way, I hope you do. But James says, that isn't what I mean when I talk about the lesson of the looking glass. You are to look deeply into that word. In other words, you are to be a student of that word. You are to discover what God has said. And then you're to do something with what you find. You're to do it. You're to shape your life by what you do. Can I just stop here for a moment? and ask you this question, how deep is your relationship to the Word of God? How deep is your relationship to the Word of God? We have been in the book of James now for 15 weeks. If you took the book of James and you read it once a week, you would have read this book carefully 15 times. Can you think of many books on your library that you've read 15 times. The more you read James, the more you see. The deeper the connections are. You begin to realize, okay, this idea shows up here, and it shows up here, and it shows up here, and oh, here it shows up here. And then you come to church on Sunday, and you hear message on that passage of Scripture, and there's more connections made. And all of a sudden, you begin to own the book of James. When James talks about being a student of the Word of God... It is much more than just finding a little daily devotional somewhere and reading that daily devotion. That's like trail mix. And if you try to live on trail mix long term, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be a very weak Christian. You're going to be a very untaught Christian. You know why? Because that daily devotion is somebody else's idea on a text of Scripture, and then the next day you're in some other passage of Scripture, and two weeks from now you're way back over here, and you're jumping around in the Scriptures all over the place, and you never dig down into the meat of God's Word. All you do is nibble away at the trail mix that is in front of you, and you content yourself with the idea that I read God's Word every day. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad that you do that, but you need more. You need to do what James is talking about when he says, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. And that brings us to the final lesson James talks about, and that is the lesson of the two wisdoms. And we have been talking about there is the wisdom of God and there is the wisdom of the world. And these wisdoms function as operating systems. They, they sort of are the operating system for our life as a believer. They are the operating system of the world in general. And so we already know what the operating system of the world is. It is wisdom from below. We talked about that last week. There is another operating system, wisdom from above, that ought to drive our life. It ought to be the operating system of our inner man. It's not just the operating system. It's also the transmission that turns belief into behavior. And so that's kind of where we are. So let's, 
Let's come now to verse 16 or verse 17 in our text. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So what does wisdom from above look like and what are its benefits? What does wisdom from above look like and what are its benefits? So let me show you the first thing in verse 17. It has a defining quality. It has a defining quality. Can you see it there in the text? Wisdom from above is first pure. It has a defining quality. The word first there is the idea that this is the chief or defining quality of this word. So whatever wisdom is, whatever this word, the idea that's coming is, it is the chief or defining quality. And the word that follows is the word pure. The first thing that James wants you to know about this wisdom is this. It is pure. That's its chief mark. That is its overriding quality. So what does James mean when he says, the main thing I want you to know about the wisdom from above is this, it is pure. There are some places in the text where this idea comes up. Do you remember uh, in James chapter 1, verse 27, where we are to keep ourselves unstained from the world? That's a form of this word. Back in chapter 1, uh, verses 5 and following, James describes somebody who comes to God and he's not fully trusting. He doesn't have a wholehearted, single-focused, fully trusting faith. He doubts. That's sort of the idea of the word here. He doubts and he's like a wave that wanders back and forth. James says the first and foremost thing you need to know about wisdom from above is it's not like this. It is completely unmixed. That's the idea of pure. It is completely unadulterated. When you talk about this wisdom, its components are completely unmixed and completely unadulterated and completely unadulterated unstained by anything that would mark this wisdom. In other words, the wisdom of God is completely different than the wisdom that comes from below. It's unadulterated, it's unmixed, and it is pure. This is the idea of the pure milk, the unmixed milk that will grow you that we read about elsewhere in Scripture. So its defining quality is this. It is completely free of worldly counsel. It is completely free of any advice that would lead you to worldly ways. And it is completely free of anything that would smell of the priorities and the values of a scorner, someone who mocks God. This wisdom is pure. It is unadulterated and it is unmixed. Now, that pure and unadulterated wisdom flows from a gracious disposition. It produces something in our life. And that's the next thing that we see. It flows from a gracious 
disposition. Let me have you move the slide forward one, please. There is a defining quality. It is pure. There is a gracious disposition that comes out of this wisdom. And, and here's what it's marked by. It is peaceable. This is someone who loves and pursues a graciousness, a peace with God and with others. It is peaceable. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11 talks about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's the other place in our Bible where this word occurs. When, when this unadulterated, unmixed wisdom from God is at work in your heart, here's what it produces in your disposition. It produces a peaceableness. This is what Jesus talked about when he said, blessed are the peacemakers because those people will be called the sons of God. They will be known as God's children. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. This is what Paul talked about in Romans 14 when he said, this person is willing to pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. There's a discernment in this person, and, and this person is able, as he engages with other people in the relationships of his life, to instinctively know how to navigate those relationships in ways that produce peace. Have you ever been around somebody that your grandmother would have said, now that's just an ornery person? I've often tried to think of the word ornery. I, I, how do you define ornery? It's just somebody that's ornery. Ornery is an ornery person. Prickly, if you were thinking about an ornery person and, um, and you were describing that person as a plant, what plant would you think an ornery person would look like? Think Texas. Think Arizona. Think desert. Think spines. A cactus. I think in the Greek, ornery means cactus. Not sure. Or porcupine. And James is saying, when, when unadulterated wisdom from God is the operating system of your life, that's not what comes out of your disposition. The exact opposite comes out. You are a peaceable person. And then you're gracious or considerate. That's the idea of the word gentle. This term here is, is the idea of someone who is intentionally looking out for the needs and the well-beings and the concerns of others more than it is their own, someone who is eager and willing to bend wherever and whenever he or she can to accommodate the concerns of others, even when that person has the right not to do that. This is the quality that Paul used to describe Jesus when he was talking to a group of Corinthians who were adamantly opposed and critical to his work in their midst. He said this, I, Paul, entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus. Jesus was marked by this. So when this unadulterated, pure wisdom of God is the operating system of your life, when you kick it in, here's what happens. It, it produces a disposition that is peaceable and gracious or considerate. And then it's reasonable. It's open to reason. This term talks or refers to a person who's easy to talk to, who's open to reason, who's willing to be persuaded. They're not determined to impose their will or their thinking on another. They're not harsh 
or implacable. These are not people bombs who exist in organizations or in churches, and when you punch their button, man, they blow up. And they don't just blow up, they blow up the church with them. This is how church splits happen. And James says, when there is pure, unadulterated wisdom from God, it produces in you a gracious disposition. And that gracious disposition manifests distinctly Christian conduct. That's the third thing we see here. It is full of mercy and good fruit. The concept of mercy is much more than just being sorry or feeling pity for another. Mercy biblically rises up out of, heart, of, of love, of genuine love. It always involves sacrificial, personal engagement, and it is way more than just looking for immediate relief for a person. It strives to bring about full well-being, shalom in the life of another person. And Jesus desires this of all of his followers. He said this, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are full of mercy, for they will themselves receive mercy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And Jesus himself made mercy possible for us through his act of obedience, his keeping of the law, and his substitutionary death so that God's mercy could triumph over his judgment. That's what we read about in James chapter 2, verse 13. So when you take the operating system, the pure, unadulterated wisdom of God that produces a distinctly Christian character and you put it in drive, here's what comes out. A life that is marked by fullness of mercy and a life that is marked by fullness of good fruit. Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21 that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them because their works were evil. What was coming out of their life was evil. And in, Gen- in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes the same argument. He says, the works or the deeds of the flesh are these, and he lists them out. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and a whole host of other things. And he says this, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look at the wisdom of the world, that is exactly what the wisdom of the world counsels people to do. Hey, you're not in a good marriage. You fell out of love. This isn't working. And there's somebody over here that you would rather be with. Wisdom from below says it's okay. You deserve to be happy. This isn't working out. It's better for you to be happy than for both of you to be miserable. And so all of a sudden, wisdom from below leads to all kinds of evil acting and all kinds of wicked deeds. And Paul says when you operate that way as a son of disobedience, don't expect to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and verse 23 to say, now there are fruits that come from the presence of the Spirit in your life. And those fruits are these, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there are no laws. It's interesting, isn't it, that James uses the word fruits here in this text? 
And Paul later is going to use the word fruit of the Spirit to describe this. And so what happens when the pure, unadulterated wisdom from God is operating in your life and in my life? Here's what happens. Our life is marked by a fullness of mercy. And our life is marked by fruit that comes from the Spirit. It is full of mercy and it is full of that kind of fruit. Now, there's a fourth thing that we see here, this wisdom that shows up in a distinctly Christian conduct is grounded in strong spiritual character. There's a disposition and then there's behavior, but all of that comes out of a character that is marked by two things. James says the character that this unadulterated wisdom produces in a person is this. It is unwaveringly impartial. It is unwaveringly impartial. When when you read the word impartial, if you have an ESV, the term there is the term we looked at earlier in in our sermon this morning when James talked about someone who doubted, who was sort of like vacillating between two things. They were trying to make a decision about the wisdom of the word and the wisdom of the world, and they kept running between the two wisdoms. We're going to see this at the end when Elijah prays on the mountain where where all of Israel is gathered and the priests of Baal are on one side and the prophet of God is on the other. And Elijah says, you can't keep running between these two. You can't keep limping between these two. You can't be like James 1. You can't be a person who is consistently driven by whatever pressure or whatever wave comes to this wisdom or that. A person who has the operating system of his life governed by the unadulterated, unmixed wisdom of God is going to be unmovable. Unwaveringly unmovable. And he is going to be impartial. He is going to look at people. He is going to look at life. And he's going to look at the world around him through the lens of the unadulterated wisdom of God. And he's not going to be a respecter of persons. He's not going to selectively serve other people. He's going to do what Jesus did. And then this person is transparently sincere. The word sincere here in the text describes, comes from a word that describes somebody playing a part. We get our, our English word hypocrisy or hypocrite from this. And it refers back to a time in uh, the Roman and Greek world when actors would come on a stage and sometimes an actor would play more than one part. And so Obviously, in order to tell the part they were playing, they had to have some way for you to know that they had changed person. And it was in the mask they wore. So they would hold up a mask when they were this person, and then they would turn it around and hold up a different mask when they were this person. And that's kind of how you knew they were playing two parts. And James says, when the unadulterated wisdom of God, when the unmixed wisdom of God is the operating system of your soul and the transmission of your life, you won't be holding up two parts. 
You won't be in, in one set of, of circumstances holding up the, the mask of the wisdom of God and then when you're with these other people who don't know God and, and who are completely hedonistic in their embrace of wisdom from below, you're not going to hold up that mask and say, okay, this is the part I'm playing today. When the unadulterated wisdom of God is marking your life, your life will be empty of that kind of hypocrisy. Now, that doesn't mean you're not perfect. That doesn't mean, I'm sorry, it doesn't mean you're perfect. That doesn't mean you never make mistakes. It simply means that you never don the mask of somebody who believes that that kind of wisdom is the best way to operate. And that's an amazingly important statement. It's grounded in strong spiritual character. And it's driven by a single dominating desire. What is the desire of a person's life who has this kind of wisdom. And I'm going to say this. It is, it is a person who lives his life to sow things in the soil of peace because he or she is a peacemaker. You can see that in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word peace there is a word that you and I are very familiar with. It's the word Shalom. And because of our study through the book of Ephesians, we realize that this is what Jesus Christ was after. Jesus Christ was after shalom. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and in Ephesians chapter 3, Jesus makes shalom. It's way more than just, I hope you have a good day, It's way more than just a greeting that you would give to one another as Hebrews when you met on the street, you would say shalom, or when you were leaving, you would say shalom. It's way more than that. It's way more than just the idea of the absence of conflict. The idea here is the full-orbed peace that God brings into your life. And that's what a person driven by the unadulterated wisdom of God is after. They aren't just after earthly peace. They aren't just after the absence of conflict. They want God's very own peace. These are people who have received the marvelous peace that Jesus made, and therefore they recognize that the things that truly matter are the things that make for peace. The kingdom of God Paul said, it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. These are people who understand God's bigger agenda and they are willing to set aside their own preferences and their own desires and their own strong opinions for the sake of peace in the kingdom of God. Now, how might that work in a church like ours? You might have very strong opinions about something. I mean, let's just be transparent here. You might have very strong opinions about a particular Bible that you wish were used in this church. You may have very strong opinions about things like music. You might have very strong opinions about things like dress. You might have very strong opinions about some of the external behaviors that have marked the backgrounds of many of us in a church like this. You might have very strong opinions about that. 
And this text, Hebrews chapter, or sorry, James chapter 3, is not telling you to abandon your opinions or to abandon your positions. It is telling you that you cannot use those opinions or allow those preferences to divide the peace of the body where God has placed you. The kingdom of heaven is not about your preferences or my opinions. The kingdom of heaven is much bigger than that. The kingdom of heaven is about righteousness and peace and joy. And when a person feels so strongly about their preferences and their opinions that they are willing to divide the body, then they are being driven by the wrong wisdom. And when a person is willing to say, you know, this is how I see it and this is how I wish it were, but for the sake of the body and for what I see God doing in our midst and for the peace and the harmony that is here, I am willing to set aside my preference. I am willing to set aside my strong opinion. That is wisdom from above. Because that's exactly what marked the early church. And they were willing to live selflessly and sacrificially to advance this peace on earth. Which brings us to the last thing this morning, and that is this. What happens when you and I are willing to do this? What happens when we're willing to divest ourselves of the wisdom of the world that's made its way into our life? It's like, think about your computer. Every once in a while, there's a virus that comes in or there's some malware that comes in and you've got to deprogram that. You've got to cleanse all of that out and you've got to make sure that the operating system in your computer is unadulterated. It is unmixed. Well, you have to do the same thing with your soul. You've got to make sure that the wisdom from God that is operating your soul is unadulterated. It is unmixed. And that means that you're going to have to set aside some things. That means that you and I might have to decide we're, we're going to look at things differently. We're going to set aside our personal, appear, our personal opinions and our personal preferences. Why should we do that? And the answer to that is this, because when you and I live this way, when we are willing to to do what James is talking about here, we reap a marvelous harvest. There is an amazing harvest that comes into the life of a person who is willing to do this. And that harvest is sown in the soil of peace by people who love peace. And when you love peace and you sow things in the soil of peace, something grows out of that. And what grows out of that is a harvest. The idea here is that there is this bountiful harvest that comes into your life and into your relationships. And and James uses this word to describe that harvest. It is righteousness. Your life will enjoy a marvelous harvest of righteousness in your life and in your relationships. And I want to show this to you. I want to show you, I I want you to see this this morning because you and I are sitting here this morning because somebody was willing to do a hard thing. Somebody was willing to sow their life in the soil of peace and out of that, Soil of peace came a harvest. That's the reason you and I are sitting here this morning. 
So as we close, I want to ask you to take your Bible to the book of Acts. And I want you to go to Acts 15. And I want you to connect what's going on in Acts 15 to what we've been talking about here about this harvest of righteousness. Now, before you look at Acts 15, if you look at, just throw your eye down to verse, or chapters 12, uh, I'm sorry, chapters 13 and 14. This is the story of the very first missionary journey undertaken by the very first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, who were commissioned by the very first church plant, the church at Antioch in Syria, which had come from the very first Christian church in the history of the New Testament, the church of Jerusalem, who was pastored by, do you remember who the first pastor was? James. So here's James and the church of Jerusalem. They commissioned a church plant in Antioch, and out of that church plant came two, or I'm sorry, three missionaries that were assigned, commissioned, and sent out on the first missionary journey. These first peace-loving gospel risk-takers took the good news of Jesus Christ to the island of Cyprus, all over the island of Cyprus, to Antioch and Pisidia, to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And they had a marvelous journey. It was filled with intense suffering, strong resistance, persecution, and incredible spiritual response. And by the time they get back to Antioch and were invited to share the gospel or or give the report, they, they reported that they had shared the gospel with the Roman proconsul on Cyprus, They had encountered an envious Jewish magician, the false prophet Bar-Jesus. They had led many Gentiles to receive Christ. They had been mistreated and had even been stoned. But in every city, new churches were established and elders had been appointed. Look at Acts chapter 14, verses 22 and 23. Paul and Barnabas strengthened the souls of the disciples. This is on their way home encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with fasting and prayer, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And when they got back to Antioch and reported to the church, they declared, verse 27, all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is stunning first missionary journey could not have gone better. Persecution, opposition, stoning. But in every city, a church was established. Elders were appointed. And Paul said it this way. When we get back, we just want you to know God did an amazing thing. He opened a door to the Gentiles. We've had several mission trips going out this summer. Can you imagine when they came back, come back and give the report if we start hearing things like, I don't know how to explain this, but everywhere we went, you, you won't believe what happened. We had all these issues that happened. Our, our, our flights were canceled. We got there and there was opposition. But let me just tell you something. Everywhere we went, we've never seen anything like it. People were ready to hear the gospel. And people, the people were just embracing the gospel and they were getting saved. And yes, there was opponents, but God overcame the opponents. And, and, and I don't know how to explain this to you. And you may not believe us, but everywhere we went, people were getting saved. And by the time we left, there was a, there was a church that was established. And more than that, there were, there, God began to move in people's hearts. And somebody said, you know what? I think God may be calling me to be an elder in this church. 
What would happen if the people that went on mission trips this summer came back and told us things like this? What would we say? We would be going, this is what? This is stunning. This is amazing. I mean, as soon as we were done, we would be all the way back there and we would be abuzz with all of this. What an amazing display of the beauty and the power of the gospel. You would think that everybody would be contagiously happy and unreservedly joyful about this. But this wasn't the case. These gospel risk takers were about to be opposed. Look, if you will, at Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, and here's what they were teaching, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a bombshell. That's, that's, that, I mean, that is like, wow. Here are Gentiles. A door has been opened. Churches have been established. All of this amazing work has been done. God has been evidently at work. And when Paul and Barnabas come back and give the report and the church is rejoicing, all of a sudden come men from Judea and they have a message about all of this. None of this is valid. None of this work is valid until these people start doing what? Getting circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. Now listen to the rest of the passage. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I mean, Paul and Barnabas can't back up without compromising the gospel. I mean, there was joy and harmony and great joy until these people came and instead of sowing in the soil of peace, they created disruption and dissension and debates. And it got so bad in the church that Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And on their way to Jerusalem, verse 3, they went to churches in Phoenicia and Samaria and described in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to the brothers. So it's like the writer wants you to know what's going on in Paul and Barnabas is not the problem. When they show up, there's joy, right? So they get to Jerusalem, they're welcomed in verse 4 by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done. But look at verse 5. But some believers, that's interesting, these are Christians. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, so some Pharisees who had become Christians, stood up and said, uh, that's in the Greek. It's the sort of the pre to this. Uh, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. I mean, these people are not going to back down. They're just not going to back down. I mean, it, they divided the church in Antioch. Now it's here in Jerusalem, and these people who are Christians, and that's an important thing to think about. These are not... 
You know, unsaved Pharisees, these are are former Pharisees who are now Christians, but they are really intent that whatever Paul and Barnabas are doing with these Gentiles, there's one thing you got to know. If they're going to be true Christians, they have to get circumcised and they have to do the law of Moses. Can you think of how that works in churches like ours? I'm just going to tell you right now, whatever's going on in this church, it's got to have this and this. And there was no small dissension. And so Peter stands up and he reminds the assembly that God himself made no distinction between what he granted Jews when they first believed and Gentiles when they believed, they received the same evidences of the Holy Spirit's presence in their life. And he ended his appeal with these words in verse 11, but we But we believe, we, the church, we believe that we, the Jewish Christians, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they, the Gentile Christians, will. And a great silence fell on the whole crowd. And then Paul and Barnabas were given an opportunity in verse 12 to recount the marvelous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And then... A wise, Christian, peace-loving pastor named James stood up and used wisdom from above to sow seed from God's word in the soil of peace that resulted in a harvest of righteousness. Look at verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Be quick to what? Be quick to hear. James 1, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, he uses Peter's Jewish name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people from his name. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak against this. And then James does an amazing thing. He doesn't use his own wisdom. He goes to wisdom from above. He goes right to the scriptures. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. And he's going to take a combination of various different Old Testament statements from the prophets and put them all together, just as it is risen. When we use wisdom from above, it's not our own ideas. James goes right to the text and he says this. This is what God said, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known of God. And then James gives his judgment, he gives his decision. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And what happened? His wisdom was received. It seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church. James used wisdom from God's word to speak wise words 
that produced three things. Here's what happened. His wise words produced immediate peace in that congregation. It settled everything down. It seemed good to the elders and apostles and the whole church. Number two, his words produced great joy and encouragement among the congregations at Antioch that had been originally divided. When they were sent off, verse 30, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they read the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This congregation at Antioch that had been thrown into discussion and debate where no joy was, was now back to joy. And then three, his wise words made possible a great spiritual harvest of righteousness consisting of millions of Gentiles who have come to know Christ. Here's my point. You and I might look a whole lot different today as Christians if James had not spoken. Your 4th of July picnic tomorrow might be very different. What's on the table tomorrow might be very different. What you wear and how you approach the law of Moses in the Old Testament might be very different today had James not stood up and sown in the soil of peace words from God that made peace. Last week I said to you, that if you're operating from the wrong kind of wisdom, you need to draw near to God. And I told you we would come back to that this week, didn't I? What does it mean to draw near to God? Can I give you a suggestion to think about? Drawing near to God means you come to His wisdom. I'm going to draw near to God when I say to God, whatever you have written down in this book is what I want to do and how I want to operate. Which means I'm going to have to learn this book. I'm going to have to study this book. I'm going to have to find out what it really says, not what I wish it said. I don't get to sort of wiggle around in the Word of God and kind of adjust it here and make it say something over here so that I can get my predetermined idea. I really have to go to the whole counsel of God. James went to the entire Old Testament and he summed up its teaching and he said, this is what God is doing. And it's exactly what he said he would do. And when you and I do that, when we come near to God and we come to his word and we come with a humble heart, when we submit to God, when we say to God, God, I'm going to do whatever your word is asking me to do in this relationship, in that relationship, about this matter, about my life, about what you're doing, how I'm processing all of these things. I just want to get your mind out of your word. When you draw near to God, you know what God says? I will draw near to you. It's not about going out in the woods and just sitting under a tree and thinking thoughts about God. That's not drawing near to God. It's not about going up on top of some mountain and looking out at the majestic beauty of all of creation and somehow feeling close to God. That's not what James is talking about when he says draw near to God. It's not about just sort of getting all by yourself and having this sort of intense emotional moment. That's not drawing near to God. 
All of those things may be good and they may be enjoyful, enjoyable and may bring joy to your life, but that's not what James means when he says draw near to God. What he means by drawing near to God is this. I'm going to come to this book and I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to find out what God is actually doing in his world and in my life according to this word. And whatever that is, I'm going to embrace it. And when we draw near to God through his word, he draws near to us. Lord, thank you this morning for your grace and your goodness. Thank you that we can come to this wisdom and see it as much more than just a set of seven or eight principles that we need to master. Lord, this wisdom is your word, the operating system of your kingdom is in this book, 66 books that function as the operating system of your kingdom because they tell us what you're doing, they tell us who you are, they tell us what your will is. And drawing near to you is only possible in any profitable way when we come to your word. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to challenge you to something. I want to challenge you to think about how you read God's Word. First of all, are you reading God's Word? And secondly, how do you read it? Are you just flitting around from this passage one day and this passage the next day and somebody else's ideas about this? And are you just feeding yourself trail mix or are you actually determined to know God's Word for yourself? Are you reading God's Word? And then number two, are you remembering God's Word? Are you actually saying, God, this week I need to remember the things you have been showing me in your Word that I need to put into practice this week in my relationship to my husband or my wife or my sons or my daughters or my workmate? Are you reading God's Word? Are you remembering God's Word? And then number three, are you reflecting God's Word in your life? Are you looking at things that come out of your mouth? Are you looking at things that you give yourself to? Are you evaluating the priorities of how you spend your money and where you go and what you do and say, how does this reflect what God has said to me in His Word? Are you reading God's Word? Are you remembering God's Word? And are you reflecting God's Word? Lord, help us to do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.